0: Amen. Friends, please join me in taking more of our requests to God in prayer. We desperately need him. We need his Holy Spirit now as we look to his word. So let's go to him and ask that he would be with us in this time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have confessed in many ways already today, we come to you as sinners as people in desperate need of your grace. We come to you and we are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit as we look to your word. We trust not in our own sufficiency at all, but we trust completely in you. And we trust in your spirit. We trust in your promises that you have made to us that your word always does its work. We want to be affected and stirred by your truth. We are in need that our faith would be strengthened, that our assurance would be bolstered, that we would be challenged and encouraged as we continue to battle our own sin. So we pray, God, that you would come. Use your word now in the lives of your people. Show us ourselves within your word. Show us yourself and show us our savior. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, friends, stories of redemption are usually well-liked. They're popular. The thing is, the stories that we usually hear about redemption, redemption in the world, are stories of people, quote-unquote, redeeming themselves. That's the language that we use. Man, I've messed something up. I need to redeem myself. Right? We've made a real mess or a person has made a real mess of a situation or maybe has made a mess of his or her own life like wholesale. They make a big mistake that has major fallout and then they get their lives in order. They have that epiphany moment. They kind of do that 180. They make the decision. They work hard. They put in the time. They put in the effort and things turn around. And we call that a story of redemption. Things were bad. Now they're better. Something was messed up. Now it's been made right. Redemption has happened. As many of you will know, I'm a sports fan. I like pretty much any sport, honestly. I mean, I have my favorites. That's another conversation for another time. But as a sports fan, a, a recent, I think actually quite poignant example of a story of redemption is the story of Tiger Woods. Many in the room, you'll know who Tiger Woods is. Many in the room may not know that Tiger Woods had not only a lot of personal life scandal beginning 10 years ago or so, but also has had tremendous physical problems, especially with his knee and his back. He's had a number of surgeries, all kinds of procedures done, was largely out of the game of golf for several years. This is a man who is in the conversation about being the greatest golfer of all time next to Jack Nicklaus, right? And so the debate, even as recently as a few months ago, was will Tiger ever win another tournament, which he ended up doing last fall, and then will Tiger ever win another major tournament? There are four of those every year. Will Tiger win another major? Will he catch Jack Nicklaus's all-time record of 18? Will that question was answered, at least in part, in April last month at the Masters, where Tiger won that tournament. And if any of you watched the scene on the 18th hole, as he's coming up the fairway and everybody knows he's won, it was epic. I mean, that word is overplayed, but it was a poignant scene. If you're a Tiger fan or not, it really doesn't matter. But that story has been talked about over and over and over again in recent weeks, about the redemption of Tiger Woods, right? The fact that his career seemed over, his life, like what's this man going to do? And now he has proved the doubters wrong, man. He has redeemed his career and he has redeemed himself. It's a good story. It's a really good story if you're a sports fan. It's one of those sports stories you like and you gravitate towards. But friends, the Bible's story of redemption is different than this kind of redemption we've just been talking about. The story of redemption in the Bible is far from people redeeming themselves, putting in the work, turning it around. Scripture reveals redemption coming to people who could never redeem themselves. Far from people working hard and earning it so that they could be applauded for their redemption. Redemption. Scripture speaks and foretells redemption into the midst of sin and into the midst of unworthiness in a way that is staggering. This is the story of God's people. Redemption spoken into sin. Redemption spoken into unworthiness. This is our story. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Micah chapter 2. We are in the second of seven sermons in the minor prophet book of Micah. So if you're not used to doing a Bible drill or you haven't done one in a while, if you let your Bible kind of fall open in the middle, it'll probably open into the Psalms. Bank right and go through Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then you'll find Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Here we are. So that's just a little Bible drill for you. And uh, I don't even know why I did that. I didn't plan to do it. I hope that it wasn't too distracting. Maybe just for my own memory, right? Just so I can keep these things straight. Just a few comments by way of overview before we dive into the text today. We're going to be considering Micah chapter 2 in its entirety this morning, verses 1 through 13. And just in case it's taking you a moment to flip, I'm going to just review a little bit of stuff that we considered last week. Just some really kind of flyover stuff just to keep in our minds as we come to chapter two today. Remember that Micah prophesied to both the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital city, Samaria. And he also prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital city, Jerusalem. So he was a prophet speaking into both of the divided kingdoms of God's people. He was prophesying in the latter half of the eighth century B.C., So he would have been a contemporary, as far as prophets are concerned, with Isaiah and Hosea. Isaiah prophesying in Judah, the southern kingdom. Hosea prophesying in Israel, the northern kingdom. Micah speaking essentially to both. Micah's major themes, as far as the book is concerned, his prophecies that are recorded for us, are really two major themes that go together. They're not separate themes, they're interwoven. And those themes are of judgment and redemption. Judgment and redemption, judgment on Israel, judgment on Judah for their sin, for their disobedience, for their iniquity. And then alongside that, interwoven with that is also God's unswerving commitment to his plan of redemption. Last week in chapter one, we saw that judgment was prophesied against Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel, which would take place we considered at the hands of the Assyrians. Many in the room will know uh, by now, as we've talked about these things a few times, that the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital city of Samaria would fall in the year 722 BC at the hands of the Assyrians. We also considered last week about how judgment was prophesied against Judah, the southern kingdom, which in measure would take place at the hands of the Assyrians as military conquest would make its way all the way to the gates of Jerusalem that military conquest would be stayed by God for a time. And we know that ultimately, even as we considered last week, the conquering and the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of Judah would take place about 100 years later at the hands of the Babylonians. And so we thought about those prophecies of judgment together last week. And so now that we've thought about all those things by way of just review and let's keep those things in our minds, let's turn our attention to our passage for today. Micah chapter 2, I'm going to read its entirety for us, beginning obviously with verse 1. This is the word of God. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster in that day that shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble you, all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I want us to consider this text together this morning in three points. Three points, that's it. Pretty simple outline for today. Point number one, woe to evildoers. Woe to evildoers. We're going to look together at verses one through five as we consider this point together. Woe, of course, you know, is a pronouncement of judgment, a pronouncement of ruin, calamity upon those who do evil amongst the people of God. Put your eyes on verse one. Woe is pronounced judgment. Disaster is pronounced upon those who devise wickedness and who work evil on their beds. They lay in their beds. They lie awake at night, contemplating how to take advantage of other people, contemplating how to extort, how to take things by force. You can see that that's a lot of the wickedness they're planning even in the context here in verse two. They want things that they're going to take. We're going to think about that more in just a moment. When they wake up, second half of verse one, we see that they perform what they've planned because it's in their hands to do it. Implication here is that the people being described are powerful. They have the power to take advantage of people who are weaker. They may very well be wealthy, taking advantage of people who have less than them. They have the means, at least we see, to execute their sinister designs, to execute their plans. And for that, they are being told, woe unto you. Put your eyes on verse two as well. These oppressors, right? These evildoers, we see here that they covet what others have. They want what their neighbor has. And so they just, they take it. They covet fields and seize them. So they take property. They covet houses and they take those away they oppress a man and his household right a man and his inheritance they defraud people of what is rightfully theirs whatever it takes any means necessary and let's just hit the pause button for a moment before we even move on to verse 3 we are familiar enough many of us in this room familiar enough with scripture that sometimes when we see these pronouncements of judgment and sin being described, it can kind of, doesn't land on us at least how it should. Like what we're seeing in this text is a violation of the law of God in heinous and sinister ways, right? This is taking place, this kind of covetousness, this kind of stealing, this kind of false witness, this kind of deceit and manipulation is taking place amongst God's people. The people who had received God's law the people whom god had brought out of egypt with a mighty hand and then had given him them excuse me his law to live by his law said you shall not covet it's happening like crazy you shall not steal you shouldn't take things that are not yours and it's happening like it's prevalent amongst the people of god you shall not bear false testimony say things that are untrue you shouldn't be deceitful you ought not lie it's happening with regularity amongst God's people. And because of that, the judgment of God is coming. Why? It's because God hates these things. We confessed earlier about the attributes of God. And you'll you'll see that in the confession that we used earlier this morning, we'll talk about his passions not being changeable. What that means is that God is not capricious like you or me. He doesn't just fly off the handle. That does not mean that God doesn't have emotions. God does feel things. He's a person, right? Not a force. So he loves and he hates. He hates this. He hates wickedness of all kinds. God not only gave his people his law to demonstrate to them his holy character and his righteous standard, and ultimately, as we know, to drive us to the Savior, He also gave us his law as our perfect guide for living. So if you want some practical takeaways in terms of, hey, how how does it look? What does it look like, brother, for me to live for God? Here are several just very, very practical, very straightforward takeaways even from this text. God hates covetousness. Fight it, pray against it, strive against covetousness. This one nails all of us, right? Covetousness is so, it's the 10th of the 10 commandments. And it's almost like you get through the first nine and you might be deluded into thinking, I'm doing okay. I haven't killed people. You know, I'm not a thief, whatever, right? But then we get to this last one. If there was ever a doubt that keeping the law is an issue of the heart, read the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. We're We're all nailed on that one. It's just you're just like me. You see something that's bright and shiny. You see something that's nice that you're like, man, I'd I'd like to have that. It's as natural as breathing. Right. I see it in my kids. How often does this happen for those of you who have children? Right. You one child is playing with a toy that this other kid hasn't touched in a year. Right. No interest whatsoever. But then child A sees child B playing with that toy. And now he's got to have it. What is that? It's covetousness. I want what my neighbor has. The fact that my neighbor has it and I don't have it is part of the reason I want it in the first place. We are all covetors by nature. So this nails us. Fight and strive and pray against this. God hates it. God hates it. Another thing, God hates lying. He hates deceit. He hates manipulation. Speak the truth, Right? So we want to honor God. Let's not covet what our neighbor has. Let's pray that the Lord would give us contentment in all things. Let's pray that God would make us people by his spirit who say the truth. Another thing that God clearly hates. Is people who take things that are not theirs. We ought to not only pray to be content with what we have. We ought to rejoice that others have what they do. We ought to work hard, right, so that we have means with which we can provide for our own families and so that we would have means that we can share with those in need. Those are very practical takeaways that flow out of these verses. These things aren't happening amongst God's people in this context. We pray that by the Spirit's work in us, they would be happening, the good thing, right, not coveting. Not lying, not taking advantage, not stealing, working hard, speaking the truth. We pray those things would be happening. I want us to move forward, though. So just back to the context at hand, right? There's all of this wickedness, all of this sin that's happening amongst God's people, and it's terrible. Therefore, God's going to speak. Verse three, here we go. Put it to our eyes there. Therefore, thus says the Lord, what's he going to say? Behold, against this family, against this people, right? Remember, this people came from a family, the family of Israel. This is God's people. Against this family, I am devising disaster. It's a strong word. From which they will not escape, right? You see that. From which you cannot remove your necks. Like it's coming and it's inevitable. You will not be spared this. For it, you will not walk haughtily, excuse me, This disaster will humble them. See, they're sinning and they're doing so proudly now. These wicked, powerful people are doing what they're doing, walking around haughtily. The Lord says, that's going to stop. Disaster's coming. You will be humbled. You will bow the knee. The judgment that he's talking about and the disaster that he's talking about is nothing different from what we've already been considering. It's, hey, the Assyrians are coming. They're going to wipe out the northern kingdom. They're going to wipe out a good portion of the kingdom of Judah. They're not going to take it completely. But then after that, the Babylonians are coming. Exile. Like the land that God gave you, you're going to be removed from it. That's what's coming. And in that day, when disaster comes, verse 4. People, not amongst the people of Israel, like the enemies of Israel, the other people will take up a taunt song against you. The nations will taunt you. The nations will mock you. The nations will, in mocking you, take up a song and will moan for you, right? That's what he's saying. They will ridicule Israel. They will ridicule Judah with taunts of moaning and mourning. They will mock God's people because God's people will be saying, we're ruined. We are utterly ruined. He has changed the portion, the inheritance, the lot of my people, and he takes it away. You see this in verse four. He removes it from me. What he gave me, he's taken from me. The nations will mock you, the Lord says. To an apostate, he allots our fields. To pagans, for crying out loud. The promised land given to pagan people. Verse five. Therefore... You will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Israel nor Judah will have anyone to represent them in the assembly of the Lord when lots are cast for inheritance. That's what this is talking about. When the people of Israel came into the land of Canaan, the promised land, in the first place, the conquering happened and they were settling the land. The land was scouted out and it was divided up into various portions. And then it was given to the 12 tribes by lot. This is a reference to that kind of scheme, right? That nobody's going to be there to represent you in the assembly of the Lord to take a lot so that you might have an inheritance. You will be utterly left out of this. Their inheritance is taken away and there is no way for them to get it back. Right? No way for them to do it. Which moves us now to our second point. If point number one was woe to evildoers, point number two is an indictment of the people and their prophets. An indictment of the people and their prophets. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11 together. The prophets and the preachers of the day rise up to speak in verse 6. Do not preach. Thus they preach. That's what they're saying. Don't, Don't preach this way. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace, it's not going to come to us. The prophets and the preachers rise up and basically say, shh, don't talk like that. Don't talk about judgment. It's not going to happen. for God's people, right? Disaster is not coming for us. This talk of judgment is foolishness. Should this be said? Now, verse seven, should this be said? O house of Jacob, should. So this is the prophet speaking here. Should this be said? Should the judgment be prophesied? Look to the following two rhetorical questions there. The first half of verse seven. These questions are the questions that are being thrown out by the preachers of the day, right? They're being thrown out by these scoffers who are saying, surely judgment's not coming. So they're being thrown out. Has the the Lord grown impatient? Surely he's not going to judge us. He's he's patient. Represents a gross misunderstanding of several things. Has the Lord grown impatient, they ask? The right answer, well, no, he hasn't actually. He's long suffering. He is patient. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. But you have no comprehension of the depth of your sin. That's the answer. No, God hasn't grown impatient but your sin is so much deeper and more pervasive than you've ever thought. His judgment upon you is not because he's impatient. The next question is just lobbed out there. Well, are these the works of God? Would God do that? He's loving, right? Would God bring judgment? Would God bring disaster? Surely not. This is asked in such a way as to present God as some kind of monster if in fact he were to bring the disaster that's being prophesied. Again, it has to be said that there is a complete unawareness of the depth and the sinfulness of their own sin to ask such a question. And what a misrepresentation of God to say, well, is God just in the business of being mean? It's not the right question. Their sin and their judgment. Has the Lord done this? No, Israel. No, Judah. You have done this to yourself. You have disobeyed God. You have sinned grievously. You are doing wickedness all day long and you think it will go well for you. How? God, as we think about so often, we thought about it last week and we think about it pretty much all the time because it's all through scripture. God is a righteous judge. A God of perfect justice. And because God is righteous and because he is just and because he's holy, he does take pleasure in executing perfect justice. What kind of God would he be if he did not? He would not be a perfect God. He would not be the Lord. As he has revealed himself, if he did not take pleasure in executing perfect justice and vindicating his righteousness. Right? Deuteronomy 28, verses 62 and 63. You can jot that down. You can read that passage later. Will the Lord do this? Will he really bring judgment upon us? Moses writes. Whereas you were, speaking to the congregation of Israel, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then this, and as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Holy smokes. Moses said it. Micah's saying. God took great pleasure in being gracious and merciful and loving and giving you something that you never deserved. And God, in just a small measure of his judgment, will take delight in doing this too. Because he is a righteous judge. Judge. He told you, Israel, that if you obeyed his law, it would go well for you. But if you disobey his law, it won't go well for you. He's keeping his word. He wasn't bluffing. The preachers and the prophets of the day, the scoffers of the day, are asking the wrong questions. They don't understand God and they don't understand their own sin. It's a problem. Let's move on, though. Let's keep thinking about this together. End of verse seven, the last question there. This would be the Lord coming in, right? Reiterating what's true. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? This is a true question. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? The answer, yes, they do. Yes, they do. You walk uprightly, man, you will be blessed. You walk uprightly, it will go well. Absolutely, amen, praise be to God. He rewards those who do good because he is upright in all his ways and in all his judgments. But verse eight, put your eyes there. Where are we going? This isn't just something that we just rehearse weekly like God rewards the good, but nobody's good. We don't just say that to say it. It's in the book. Here we go. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Yes, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. Right? It's the problem. They're not doing good. In fact, not only are they not walking up rightly, they have acted as God's enemy. To be God's enemy would mean a number of things. But it would mean at least this. They hate what God loves. They love what God hates. They do what is evil in his sight, and they don't do what is good in his sight. We're given examples in the last part of verse 8 and verse 9 of some of this acting like God's enemy. Well, how? You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. So you strip honorable men who mean you no harm, you strip honorable men of their possessions. Verse 9. Not just men do you oppress, but women. The women of my people, you drive out from their pleasant homes. You oppress the women of my people, but not just the men, not just the women. You do wickedness to the children. Second half of verse nine. From their young children, you take away my splendor, my glory, their inheritance. You take this away from the children amongst my people. These people are God's enemies. In the way that they are carrying themselves. Let's move on to verse 10. Exile. Being removed from the land is again prophesied. This first phrase here. Arise and go. It could be rendered more forcefully. Like get up and go away. Get up and get out. Why? Get up and leave. For this is no place to rest. That's. That's a strong statement. Why? Get up and leave this land. You're going to be out of here. This is no place to rest. When the land was given to Israel, what was the promise? This will be a place of peace. This will be a place of rest. It's not anymore. This land that you were given, I'm taking it from you. It was given to you for your good and my glory for your rest. That's over. Your wickedness has ruined this. Your sin has wrecked it. The land that God had promised that the Israelites waited so long for and finally received and finally settled is going to be taken from them. Or maybe more precisely, they're going to be taken from it, right? They're going to be removed from it. God's people we see, second half of verse 10, Get out of here. This is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. God's people, in other words, have defiled the land. It's now characterized by uncleanness that brings destruction. Let's move on to verse 11, just a final indictment on the people and their prophets, their preachers. So this verse makes me think of 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul tells Timothy that there will come a day in the church when men will put around them people that say what their itching ears want to hear. This sounds like that. If a man, verse 11, if a man should go about and utter wind and lie. So if he should go about speaking nonsense and things that are just untrue, about what? saying, I'll preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people, Micah says. Somebody spewing nonsense and telling falsehoods, saying, hey, let's talk about drunkenness and debauchery, right? That's what these people want to hear. And that's what their prophets are saying. It's an indictment on the false prophets for sure, but it's an indirect indictment on the people for listening to that nonsense and for wanting it in the first place. So this isn't a good picture, right? We're tracking, right? This is bleak. So where we've been in verses one through 11, make verses 12 and 13 like almost knock you over because you're thinking, okay, I think I understand like things are really bad. The people are really guilty. God is a righteous judge He's going to judge them like he said he would. He's going to take the land from them like he said he would. These people, like they've defiled it, it's over. And then we get number verse 12, verse 13, point three, a promise of salvation. A promise of salvation. So we've had woe to evildoers, an indictment on the people and their prophets. Number three, a promise of salvation. The prophets speak like this a lot. It's often the case, especially in the prophets and maybe even more pointedly in the minor prophets. I can think of a number of examples where the promise of salvation comes like seemingly out of nowhere. Like it's just verse after verse after verse of sin and wretchedness and defilement and judgment and disaster. And then like, whoa, God says, but here's what I'm going to do. It about knocks you out of your seat if you're reading and you're in it. Think of Hosea, like chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. That whole chapter, over and over again, you get this refrain about Israel's infidelity. Like Israel, God says, Israel is a whore. He uses that word over and over and over again. She's whoring after other gods and other nations. And he's talking about how this is Wicked and it's unfaithful and he's going to punish her. Verses 13 and 14 of Hosea 2 read this way. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, the false gods, when she burned offering to them and adorned herself with her rings and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. The next verse, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. What? What? Like, you're telling me, like, verse after verse after verse of unfaithful, like she's whoring after other gods and other nations. Therefore, behold, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to allure her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Are you kidding? That's what God does, though, over and over again. Rejoice, church, because this is your story. This is your salvation and mine. Right? Right? Here we go, verses 12 and 13. Let's look at this. So, a preacher who preaches about strong drink and debauchery and drunkenness, that would be the prophet for this people, terrible, but I'll surely assemble you, all of you, O Jacob, and I'll gather the remnant of Israel. I'll set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. I'm going to gather my people. We should see the language of Jacob and the remnant of Israel is one in the same group, right? I'm going to gather you, Jacob. I'm going to gather the remnant of Israel. The Lord, in other words, is going to gather his covenant people, right? He's going to gather those whom he has purposed to save. This is a salvific promise. He's gathering the true Israel, right? You see that at the beginning of verse 12. Then he continues, I'm going to set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So we hear now, beginning in verse 13, particularly, we already are getting these shepherding images, but it becomes even more poignant. The Lord will be the shepherd of his people. Verse 13, he who opens the breach goes up before them. That's like letting them out of their pen, right? Letting them out to pasture. So here we go. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. So they go out by the gate to pasture. The king passes on before them. The Lord at their head. The Lord will lead his people out to pasture. As he's gathered his sheep into a pen, he will lead them out. The Lord is the shepherd of his people and he is their king. Sound familiar? Shepherd king. Listen to these words. This is Ezekiel 34, 11 and following. Don't flip there necessarily. Just listen. You can jot this down. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Remember that Ezekiel is writing this from Babylon as Judah has been exiled. He's writing this after Micah is long dead and after the judgment that's prophesied in Micah has come. Ezekiel is writing this. God's going to gather his people. He's going to rescue them. And I, says the Lord, will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. They've been scattered and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I seek the lost and I bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong, the oppressors, right? I will destroy I will feed them in justice. A few verses later, I will rescue my flock, God says. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And here we go. I will set up over them one shepherd. Who's that? My servant, David, he says. David's dead. What does this mean? Who is this, David? I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, there he is again, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I've spoken. Praise God. He will be the shepherd of his people. I'm going to do this. We're going to go John chapter 10. This, this stuff is too good to not look at it for a second. You can jot this down. John 10, 1 through 15. This Micah 2 12 and 13, like this imagery of a shepherd and the Lord as their king leading their people out. We've already looked at Ezekiel 34, now John 10. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, like in Micah 2, the door that they go out to pasture. Jesus is that for his sheep, he says. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Amen. When you read your Bible with these lenses on, it's amazing how things become so clear. Right? It's so consistent. This whole thing. It's so consistent. It's remarkable how it hangs together. We're looking at a, a minor prophet who's prophesying judgment on Israel and Judah in like 750 B.C. Then we have another prophet, Ezekiel, like a hundred plus years later, right? From Babylon, everything's ruined. And he's talking about the Lord gathering his people like a shepherd. Then a few hundred years after that, this Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the scene and starts telling Israel, I'm the good shepherd. It's about... It's about redemption. It's about Jesus, the Redeemer, and how he would come and accomplish salvation. So question, this is still kind of, I guess, sort of underneath point number three, this is how we're going to end our time, right? Question for us, especially in light of this kind of out of nowhere promise of salvation from Micah two twelve and 13. Do you see, I trust that you do, I feel that we do, do you see your own salvation there? Do you see your redemption there? You should. We like Israel were mired in sin. Covetousness. Yeah, check that one. Liar. Yeah. Thief, taking things that aren't mine. If we've broken any part of God's law, we're guilty for all of it. James 2, right? It's an all or nothing proposition. We are condemned and guilty. And with all of that being true, like we like Israel, verse eight of our text today, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. So were you. So was I. And with all of that being true, God saved us. Why would he do that? Why? has everything to do with the fact that He is a gracious and merciful God and He is a covenant-keeping God. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know this from Scripture, planned redemption in eternity past. Before the foundations of the world, this plan was in place. So before the world was made, redemption was in the mind of God. Right? He makes the world. He wills that it falls, yet without sin. Didn't surprise him. It's part of the plan. And then, out of that fallen creation, he says, I'm going to save my people. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit make a covenant of redemption. And it was decided, like, okay. How is this going to happen though? How is this going to be executed? It's like, okay, the son, God, the son is going to be the mediator of this. God, the son is going to accomplish this. From eternity past, this was the plan. Redemption comes by grace, not merit, right? God's covenant of grace that he makes. So he made a covenant with Adam and Eve that they broke, right? Don't eat of that tree. And they ate of it. And then he promises in Genesis 315, in the midst of wickedness, in the midst of original sin, he says, there's one coming. Seed of the woman's coming. It's going to crush the serpent's head. Covenant of grace, baby, it's coming. The rest of the Bible is about that. It's about that covenant of grace being realized and accomplished by God, the son who took on flesh. That's how the Bible speaks the way that it does because this has always been the plan. God's not like trying to scramble and come up with a solution on the fly. It's plan A. Okay, so this covenant of grace that God makes, it's not contingent upon us, but on him. It doesn't depend on our faithfulness clearly, but on his. So question, pastor, maybe two of them. Does God's grace mean this covenant of grace stuff you're talking about, does it mean that he suddenly stopped caring about our sin? And so he just says, you're good with me. Another question. Does God's grace mean that he no longer cares that his people would perfectly keep the law? Because he tells us to. It's real questions. It says are all over scripture. God cares about sin. He's a righteous judge. He says, keep the law and it will go well. Don't and it won't help me out, brother. How do I hold this together? Legit question. Number one, does God's covenant of grace mean that he suddenly stopped caring about the sin of his people? Along with the apostle Paul, by no means did he stop caring about the sin of his people. This covenant that God made in sending Jesus was to deal with the sin of his people. He came, Jesus, he came to what? Make atonement and to propitiate, to satisfy the anger of God and the righteous wrath of God against sin. So God cares very much about sin. This is why Christ had to come. So that He could take on Himself all of our law-breaking, all of our covetousness and our lying and our thievery. He could take it on Himself, Him who knew no sin, became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God, right? He redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're going to get there by becoming a curse for us. He took the penalty. So this is a real transaction. Like this matters for you today and it'll matter on Wednesday morning when you think about your sin and you're convicted as we should be by the sin in our lives. We know, okay, like that, that, that I just did is terrible and like, Father, have mercy on me for Jesus' sake. And we can know in those moments that that sin was paid for in full by Christ on the cross. It was not a hypothetical atonement. He purchased you and me. The full weight of every sin, He took it and paid the penalty. He took your guilt and your corruption, any debt that you ever owed to God, He really paid it for you. And it's over. That's comfort in the midst of the fight. But then. Not only has justice been satisfied because Jesus has seen to that, that second question, does God's covenant of grace mean that he suddenly stopped caring that his people would perfectly keep the law? What about all that language? And not just keep the law, but keep it perfectly. Again, did God stop caring about that? By no means did he stop caring about that. He didn't just decide, you know, I'm going to grade on a curve now and I'm just going to kind of let them by. Yeah, that was really a C, but I'm going to give it an A because nobody's making an A in this class. That's not how God works. Galatians four and five. At the right time, Jesus was born under the law in order to a woman under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law. That's us. So not only did Jesus make atonement, not only did he satisfy God's wrath, he perfectly fulfilled righteousness. He kept every commandment. He fulfilled the law, not just according to the letter, but by the spirit of it too. Perfect obedience. He fulfilled the law in our place. He fulfilled the covenant of works that Adam broke. So you've heard it said many times and it's exactly right. We are saved by works, just not ours. We are saved by works, just not ours. What do we mean? We're talking about the perfect righteousness of Christ. His merit counted to us by faith. So when we trust Christ, not only it's that double imputation, right? That double counting thing. The great exchange. He takes my sin and pays for it. Just as satisfied. I get his righteousness so that God looks at me and says, yes, in Christ, you have perfectly kept the law you will inherit eternal life. Thomas Boston, it's a name you can jot down. It's a Scottish pastor, the early 1700s. He says this about Galatians 4, 4, and 5. Christ fulfilling the covenant of works, the law in our place. Quote, Sinners, being united to Christ by faith return being carried back the same way they came only their own feet never touched the ground but the glorious mediator sustaining the persons of them all walked every bit of the road exactly close quote he's talking about how the sinners come back to God sinners come back to God the same way which they left they broke a covenant Do this and live, do this and die. They broke that. Sinners are brought back to God the same way. Do this and live. But the Savior did it. You walk back to God the same way you walked away, but the Savior carries you because he did it for you. That's beautiful. That picture. I returned to God the same way I left, but my feet never touched the ground because Christ has me and he fulfilled the law for me. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his triumphant resurrection. He cleansed us. He took away our sin, our guilt and our corruption. And having made us clean, he carried us back to God. To which we say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that a sinner like me, that sinners, my goodness, like these could be saved. Only by Christ and His merit. Our hope is really built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's a great song. Our union with Jesus through faith is the ground of our hope, always. We have God's Spirit in us, and so we now are being conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We're being changed. Our lives look different than they did maybe even six months ago, but certainly six years ago or 20 years ago. We are by God's grace and by his spirit, we are doing things like this. We're applying means that he's given us. We're obeying, really. We're fighting against our corruption. That internal war that's on your hands is actually good news in one sense. The war is hard, but you fight because you have life. You fight because you have God's spirit. Rejoice in that reality. Now, with all that being said, the transformed life is real. And it is something that bolsters our assurance. We can take encouragement from the change in our lives. But as your pastor, I don't ever want you to be trusting in that like at the risk of sounding insane, like do not trust the fruit in your life as the ground of your assurance. Even if it's the work of the Holy Spirit, be encouraged by it, but don't trust in it. Don't rest in it, right? Because two things are certain for you today. Two things are certain for you today. One, you will fail today to meet God's righteous standard. And two, Christ has paid for every failure, and you're his forever. Those two things front of our minds in the fight against sin and in living a life in the midst of this fallen world. Along with the psalmist, we can say, Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Amen, somebody. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And like we sang earlier, mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. That's our hope, and that's our comfort. What a story! It's unlike any redemption story ever told. What a Savior, right? What a God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you still as sinners like we did before the sermon started. We thank you so much for your word. You revealed yourself and your plan of redemption to us when you didn't have to do that. You would have been perfectly good and perfectly just to leave us in our sin. And yet because you are you, you plan from eternity past to save a people. And we thank you and give you praise for that. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he has done. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would continue to work in us, that we would battle against our own corruption. We pray that we would live lives that would honor you. And we pray that you would continue to sustain our faith in Jesus. We pray that we would be strengthened in our faith, even now as we've heard your word preached and as we come to the Lord's table, we pray that you would minister to us by your spirit in this time. And we pray for you to be with us. We pray for you to empower these means in Jesus' name. Amen.